Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 41, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter 41. We are uh, still moving through a series we started at the very beginning of summer, kind of late spring, early summer. And uh, it's hard to believe that summer is just scooting on through, man. It is just flying. And uh, school going to be starting up here pretty soon. Don't tell the kids I said that. Uh, but it's just hard to believe this is where we are. So we've been in the series kind of through the whole entire summertime. And uh, a few messages left still after today. And then we'll wrap it up and see what God has next. But the focus of the series has been change of plans. And uh, it's one of those series, I think, that kind of, uh, it, it really applies to every single one of us because all of us have been through times in our lives where our plans changed. And we had worked and we had set those plans some of you are maybe kind of OCD about getting those plans set, and you've, you've had plans set for years about certain areas of your life. Others of you, you know, maybe not so much the planner, but you still have plans. You know, they may be buried in your mind or in your heart somewhere, but we all have expectations. We all have plans. And what we've learned is, is that uh, it's a fact of life that plans change. It just happens. That's the way, that's the way life rolls. And so we experience that consistently. Sometimes in minor ways, sometimes in major ways. And so what we've been doing is just sort of unpacking how do we deal with the changes of plans that come in our lives? What is it that God's up to? Because really through every change that comes, there is always a spiritual component, right? There's always that spiritual element where God is wanting to accomplish something. Even when our plans change, his purpose is still intact. And so God is wanting to use many times the changes of plans that come in our lives to teach us something about himself Himself that we would have missed otherwise. Now, some of you may be familiar if you ever uh, took psychology classes in school at all, or maybe just from different you know, Facebook posts and blog posts, sometimes you'll see uh, uh, lists that people have put out of some of the Top stressful things in a person's life. How many of you are familiar with some of those lists? Not stress, but just some of those lists. All right, if you read any of those lists, many times what you'll find is just kind of a grading scale where the researchers that research those kinds of things will sort of grade out. You know, this is the most stressful thing. They'll give it 100, and then they'll sort of work in decreasing fashion through that scale. And almost inevitably, you'll find these items. This is from a list that I happened to look up as I was preparing for this message. These were some of the things included in some of the most stressful uh, uh, events in a person's life. One was moving. All right. How many of you have moved in the last five years, whether locally or you've moved states? All right. You understand how stressful that can be when you move. You may move down the street around the corner. You may never leave the island and still you're ready to like claw people's eyes out because of the stress that comes with moving. So moving is one of the most stressful events. Another that was listed was illness. Uh, oftentimes it's unexpected, an illness that comes. Uh, family changes, uh, specifically a loss of a family member uh, or an adjustment that has to come within the context of family uh, can be one of the most stressful events in a person's life. Workplace issues, uh, unemployment, changes that come in a job, maybe a job that is eliminated or a position that's eliminated or a company closes or you get fired or you get laid off. That's one of the most stressful events a person can face. Uh, another one is homelessness. You know, we get this image in our mind of what homelessness looks like, but oftentimes it doesn't look the way you think it does. It may be directly related to uh, uh, a loss of a job. It may do be directly related to a family dynamic. It may be directly related to another item on the list of the most stressful issues in a person's life, debt. Uh, another item that was listed is jail, right? You know, it, it, the thing is, all these things that you read on these lists as the most stressful events in a person's life, virtually... Every single one of them have to do with a change of plans. Right? Nobody plans for debt. Nobody plans for their company to shut down. Nobody plans 
many times, you know, to have to move from point A to point B. You know, some of you moved to this city because you, you really didn't want to, but it was because of another underlying factor that changed in your life, something in your family, something regarding financial issues, or, or maybe it was related to your, to your uh, career, to your work, and you moved, and, and it was a change of plans. You never expected to do that. And the thing is, whenever we go through these change of plans, we find that God is always at work. And so in this series, we've been looking at a variety of ways that God works. One, God oftentimes uses our change of plans to show us our need for a Savior. You know, He introduces Himself many times in our lives because our plans change. And we realize, I'm not in control, and I can't control what happens at work. I can't control what happens uh, with my health and, and, and a lot of other areas of my life. And so God uses changes sometimes to bring us to Himself. I'm just curious, how many of you would say, just by raising your hand, I didn't even ask this question in the first service, uh, but I'm just curious, how many of you would say that a change of plans in your life was a key ingredient, a key factor to you placing your faith ultimately in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord? I'm just curious, let me see your hand. Hold it up high, all right? Just kind of look around. So many times God uses a change of plans to bring us, right, and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Other times we can always trust that regardless of what the change is, financial, health, uh, uh, relational, whatever it may be, God is also wanting to mold and shape us into the image of Christ. So he's wanting to to just kind of whittle off those things that don't look like Jesus, and he'll use a change of planes many times to do that. He'll use a change of planes to direct us, to get us from where we are to where he wants us to be. Sometimes we wander, and it's a change of planes that he'll use to bring us back to himself, or maybe we're in his will. But it's kind of like, you know, this this season of our life is over now. God has something new for us, and he'll use a change of plans to direct us where he wants us to be. And what we found through this series is that God wants us to trust him. God wants us to work with him. God wants us to be content where we are. God wants us to have joy in the midst of our circumstances. So all that brings us to today with another message in this series. And I've chosen to title this message, Change of Plans, Others. Change of Plans, Others. I'm going to go ahead and give you, just up front, the principle we're going to unpack this morning. Okay, And then what we're going to do is we're going to pick up kind of where we left off last week, the story of Joseph. And we're going to begin to trace this principle through uh, some... some uh, passages of Scripture, mainly in the Old Testament, maybe one or so from the New Testament. Here's the principle I hope you'll jot down. You'll see it on the overhead, that plans change in our lives. Sometimes plans change in order to accomplish God's best for others. Now, you may be going through a change of plans in your life right here today. I'm not guaranteeing you and telling you that God is allowing or orchestrating this change of plans for the benefit of other people. However, I am saying that it is worth the question and it is worth some soul-searching, and it is worth some prayer time. Because it is not uncommon for God to orchestrate changes to our plans, not for ourselves primarily, but for the benefit of others. We're going to see that today in the passage of Scripture that we're primarily going to focus on. Now, this is where the rubber hits the road. I'll just be honest. Because when we think about our plans changing for the purpose or for the benefit of another person, this is where it gets difficult. I mean, this is, this is some tough, uh, some tough terrain to navigate, right? Because I'd be willing to say for a lot of us, it is not a real warm, fuzzy feeling to think about God changing my plans, our plans for the benefit of somebody else. I mean, come on, God, don't, don't mess with what I put together. Don't mess with what my ideal is. Don't mess with what I have, have expected and, and worked for and organized in my life just so that somebody else can benefit, right? A lot of times that's our first, our first mentality, our first response. However, it is a fact that God will at times orchestrate changes in us 
for the benefit of somebody else that he also loves as much as he loves us. And this, this really causes us to have to, to work through some really, really hard questions. See, we can't be content just to hang out as Christians up on the surface, where we just sort of go to church in, in somewhat haphazard fashion, maybe a couple times a month or so, maybe three or four times a month. But we really don't read Scripture, and, and really our, our goal is, you know, I want to go to church, and I want to feel good, and I want to leave happy, and I hope they sing the songs I like, and, you know, just, just kind of keep me warm and fuzzy. And if that's our desire as a believer, as a follower of Christ, listen, there's going to be a time that comes, because this world is cruel and this world is unfair. Uh, God didn't make it that way, by the way. That This world is cruel and unfair. There's going to be a time that comes where we have to deal with the realities of life in a fallen world, and we are not going to be able to stay on the surface for long. We're going to either have to go deep in our faith, deep in our relationship with God. We're going to have to ask some hard questions and wrestle with some difficult topics, or we run the risk of just hanging out on the surface and possibly even abandoning God at some point down the road. So when we think about going through a change of plans in our own individual lives for the benefit of others, it causes us to to really wrestle with the truth of, do I really love others? as much as I love myself, the way that Matthew chapter 22 speaks of. Because if I don't want my plans to change just so somebody else can benefit, I might not be loving others as much as I love me. It causes us to ask ourselves, are we willing and able to advance another and to promote another to our own detriment, the way that Philippians chapter 2 speaks of? See, this, this gets into some very difficult, uncomfortable territory. And yet God at times will allow changes in our lives simply for the benefit of others. Many of you know Jennifer Vakela. Jennifer and her husband Dan and their kids have been a part of our church for long since before I came and I've been here 14 years. So they've been here for a long time. That whole family, uh, Peyton, Lane, uh, Dan and Jennifer, they all love the Lord. They love the Lord deeply. They serve God here and have for a long time. Um, so a lot of us know Jennifer. If not, uh, Jennifer is a fitness instructor. That's one of the things that she does. She has a lot of college training, a lot of college background. She does a lot of other stuff too. But she, part of what she does is fitness training. And so uh, back in March, March 2nd, she was actually involved in an automobile accident. Now, ironically, I asked if I could share this today uh, or share this story. Today's the day where it fits, and they're out of town in Chicago with family, uh, so she's not even here. But uh, many of you know she was in this automobile accident. March 2nd was when it took place, and uh, she received some injuries as a result of that automobile accident. One of the injuries was a fracture to her knee that was so significant that though they decided not to do surgery, it did require her going 12 weeks with no weight at all on that that leg. So no weight bearing whatsoever for 12 weeks, for three months on the leg that received the fracture uh, in the knee. And so she had moved through that time. She was in a brace. Many of you remember that uh, through the course of the spring and early summer. And she had come to the place then where the 12 weeks was done and she was starting rehab. She had kind of transitioned to crutches and had been off of crutches for about three weeks. She was doing rehab out at Tybee. She was doing deep water running, so she was out there not putting weight on her leg uh, in regards to the training, but she was doing deep water running out in, in the ocean at Tybee just a few weeks ago, three weeks after giving up the crutches and the cane. And as she was out there doing her deep water running, she heard the screams of a couple of folks not too far away who were basically drowning. It was a mother and her son. And Jennifer swam over and was the one who rescued them and who brought them to safety. It dawned on me a couple of weeks after that. I thought, wow, what if God 
allowed everything to happen in her life with the accident, the recovery, and the rehab to orchestrate the circumstances to put her where she was, which she probably would not have been there for that reason had those things not happened, for the benefit, the physical safety, and even the physical you know, rescue of two individuals as a result of it. Now, you may be saying, oh, come on, God has all power. God could have, could have rescued them some other way. Yeah, he could have. We all understand that. God could do anything that he, that he well pleases. He has the power to do that. However, it is worth our significant thought to think, maybe God allowed those events to occur for the benefit of others. And I have to ask myself, would I be willing to endure all of those things, an accident and recovery and all those things, if God told me in advance, Brooks, you're going to go through all this, but it's not for you, it's going to be for the benefit of others. Would I be willing to do all that? And so all this raises some difficult difficult questions that we have to grapple with because the reality is, is that God at times allows plans to change for the ultimate good and the ultimate benefit of other people. And we have to be willing. We have to be at a place where we're okay with that, where we're humble and we're willing to say, God, whatever you choose to do is fine with me. We see that demonstrated in Scripture in the book of Genesis in the life of a man named Joseph. As I mentioned earlier, we picked up Joseph's story last week, and it starts in Genesis 37 primarily, kind of runs its way woven through the, the, the rest of the book of Genesis through chapter 50. If you weren't here last Sunday, or if you're not familiar with Joseph's story, basically uh, Joseph is a hero of the Old Testament, a hero of the entire Scriptures. But his story kind of starts at the age of 17 when he has a couple of visions that God had given him. Now God doesn't so much give visions today as he did seemingly in the, in the pages of Scripture. We have the Holy Spirit that lives within us. We have the Bible to read. That's, those are primary ways God speaks today. But in Joseph's life, he gave Joseph a couple of visions. And, and the, the vision was that Joseph would rule, that he would reign over people his family included. Well, he had some older brothers that weren't, you know, willing to sort of take to that idea. They hated Joseph. They despised Joseph. He was like daddy's favorite, you know, and so they hated him. And so when he came at the age of 17 and said, hey, God has shown me that I'm going to be ruling over over uh, uh, many, including you guys. Well, that was the tipping point for them. And so what they did was they took Joseph, they threw him into a pit, they told their father that he had been killed by wild animals, and then they sold him off into slavery. There was a traveling band of people known as Ishmaelites. And they literally, they sold him. You think your older brother was bad. They sold him into slavery, right? And so off Joseph goes. And as far as these brothers know, he is no more, right? Whatever happens to him, who cares? We're just glad that he's gone. And so Joseph goes off. He is taken to Egypt by this traveling band of Ishmaelites. And when he gets there, ultimately, he is sold as a slave into the household of a man named Potiphar. Now, Potiphar was a bad dude. He was the chief bodyguard of the Pharaoh of Egypt, all right? So think Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Think, all right, I need a main bodyguard. Potiphar was him, okay? So he, he was probably had a, you know, he probably had a little mean streak to him. So Potiphar purchases Joseph, and basically Joseph is shown favor by God, and he ascends to, to, to a position of great favor in Potiphar's household to where Potiphar says, hey, listen, everything but my wife is yours. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you're sort of in control here. I trust everything except my own wife to you. Well, the day would come. Joseph would do everything with integrity. And yet Potiphar's wife would make a claim that Joseph had made an advance towards her. Potiphar would choose to believe his wife over Joseph and would have Joseph thrown into prison. Now, remember, he had, had, uh, uh, he had been shown by God 
that he would one day rule. And here he is for two years, cast into the king's prison, right? The deepest part of the prison, I would say. And for two years, forgotten. Joseph would continue to serve the Lord and to trust God and to trust God. And God would advance him still even further to the point to where Pharaoh, king of Egypt, would have a dream. Pharaoh would ask the best in his court to interpret this dream. The greatest magicians and those that were involved in the occultic practices, none of them could interpret Pharaoh's dream. And yet Joseph had the ability to do that, that had been given him by God. So the Bible says Joseph was brought into Pharaoh's presence, and Pharaoh shared his dream. And there were actually a couple of dreams that he had. One was, he said, I've had this dream that there were seven skinny cows that came up from the Nile, and they have devoured and eaten seven fat cows and healthy cows that were there. That was one dream. He said, my other dream was that I saw in my dream seven scorched ears of corn that devoured seven healthy ears of corn. And so Joseph, as God had given him this ability, he ultimately uh, interpreted those dreams for him. And he said to Pharaoh that there are going to be seven years of prosperity, seven years of abundance, you know, with the harvest that would come. But those seven years would be followed by seven famine, years of famine, seven lean years. And so when he interpreted these dreams, Pharaoh ultimately brought him into a position of leadership. And it ultimately fulfilled the vision that God had given Joseph 13 years before at the age of 17. So we pick up with the story there, and let's just jump in and see how God continues to work through Joseph's life and how it supports the principle we're looking at today. Sometimes our plans change for the benefit of others. Genesis 41. Let's begin in verse 41. It says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen, and he put the gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonath Paneah, which is kind of a a culturalized name that would fit the Egyptian area where Joseph was, was now living. And he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt, and Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh, and he went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. And thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. And so the picture there is that Joseph has now ascended to a position of of ruling, of leadership now, just like God had said. He has been through the pit, literally. He has been through uh, slavery. He has been through change after change after change, false accusation, thrown in prison, spending two years there, people forgetting about him. He's been through all these changes. And now finally, 13 years after the visions came from God, he has experienced what God had promised all along. He is now ruling. 
Just as he said when he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, seven years of plenty have come. And Joseph, with amazing leadership, has begun storing away grain for the seven years of famine that he knows are coming down the road. So let's just move forward a little bit in the same chapter. Chapter 41, let's move up to verse uh, 53, see what takes place next. It says, When the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. And when the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses, and he sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe the land of Egypt. Now catch this, verse 57. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. All right, so they have now had seven years of plenty, and now they are beginning their seven years of famine. As we continue in the story, what we find is that over 20 years have now passed. The famine that hits Canaan has affected now Joseph's own family. There is a 200-mile distance, roughly, from Canaan, where Joseph's family was located, to where Joseph was now in Egypt. Over 20 years, probably closer to 22 years, we find that much has changed in Joseph's life. He hasn't seen his brothers now for over 20 years. To them, he is as good as dead. He is gone out of sight and out of mind. Well, now the famine has struck their own territory in Canaan, and it would be his brothers that would uproot, and they would travel to Egypt to get grain, having no idea that Joseph was there. Last they saw him, he was sold to a traveling group of Ishmaelites. They have no idea that he's in Egypt, much less ruling there. And so we pick up moving to the next chapter, chapter 42. Let's begin in verse 1. So Jacob, this is all of their, their, their father, Joseph and his brother's dad. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, I love this, why are you staring at one another? <laughs> you know, they're like starving. You know, what are you looking at me for? Why are we just sitting here staring at each other? Uh, you know, let, let's come up with a better plan. So verse 2, he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there, buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob didn't send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I'm afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel, all right, this is another reference to Jacob, Israel, Jacob. So the sons of Israel, or Jacob, came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came, and they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. You talk about irony, right? So they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them, and he spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. All right, so the picture is, again, it has now been roughly 22 years since they've seen him. And now here they are, standing before their brother that they just absolutely sold off into slavery and just pulled the rug out from under him. And now the tables have turned. So let's move up to chapter 45, beginning in verse 1. Basically, kind of what's happened between these chapters, uh, it, it's a lot of information, but I'll just sort of keep it simple, is that they did get... 
grain from Joseph. They went back to their home in Canaan. They consumed all of that roughly, and then they came back again to get grain uh, a second time. So here, chapter 45, verse 1. So Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out for me. And so there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? So he had no idea. It's been 22 years. But his brothers couldn't answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for, and then catch this next phrase, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Remember, there are times that God will allow or orchestrate a change of plans for the ultimate benefit of others around us and the benefit of others, uh, other people's lives. Joseph recognizes this. He says, hey, the whole, all of that that happened over these 22 years, you selling me to slavery and everything that happened afterwards, God was, was overseeing all that in, in, in his sovereignty in his providence, and God knew what he was up to, and he used those circumstances, sending me before you to preserve life. He says, for the famine has been in the land these two years. So let's put together the timeline, all right? Joseph was sold into slavery. Thirteen years pass before he ascends to being the ruler. Another seven years of famine ultimately pass, or, or plenty ultimately pass, and then now there are two years into famine. You're looking at 22 to 23 years that have passed here. Joseph says the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here. And I'm sure these brothers are thinking, what are you talking about, man? We, we totally, we totally hung you out in the dry. But Joseph looks back and he says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of his, all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. See, Joseph could say, you know what? None of that stuff was my plan. I didn't plan to get sold off into slavery and, uh, and ripped away from my family and, and then accused of something I never did and get thrown off into prison. I, I, didn't, I didn't plan for those things. But even though my plans changed, God's overarching purpose was unchanged to the point to where you get to the last chapter of this book, five more chapters ahead, chapter 50, verse 20. Look at what he says. He's standing before his brothers again, and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. I mean, he's not trying to sugarcoat this. He's, you meant evil against me. I mean, you treated me like no one should ever be treated, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. I would be willing to say that there are some here, probably a significant number, who would say, Brooks, my plans changed as a result of sin. They changed as a result not just of sin, but as a result of somebody else's sin against me. I am not smart enough to be able to put together all of the pieces of how to be able to fully explain how those kinds of things happen. And so for me, I keep it very simple. And what I believe and what I understand based on the pages of Scripture is that in the first two books of this Bible that we have, that God created people and He created a world that was free of sin.
And yet He gave us, and He allowed, and He created the capacity for us to make choices by our own free will. If we can't love Him as an act of our free will, it is not love. Love cannot be forced. It can only be freely given. And so God, when He created us, and He created this world, He created it without the existence of sin. However, He created us with the ability to make our own choices. And there are times that we realize that this world in which we live is a badly fallen world. And there are times that the evil that is perpetrated by those around us sometimes invades our own lives. And I understand that there are probably some in a group this size today who have been wrestling with the dynamics of how could God allow something, these changes of plans to come in my life that came as a direct result of evil. I believe what he wants us to see is that the evil that is perpetrated in this world and the sin that is carried out and the consequences that come are not his fault, but rather he has chosen to come and to insert himself in the person of Jesus to suffer those same consequences of evil as well, to show us that when we know him and when we trust him, that even though he has not done away with the presence of sin, he can still bring victory and he can still bring joy and he can still bring hope and he can still provide for his ultimate purpose in our lives and even use the change of plans that come to accomplish that. Joseph is a perfect example. Joseph looked back, looks back and he says, you know what? You meant evil, but even your evil couldn't thwart the overall purpose of God, and he has accomplished what he wanted. And I believe Joseph could say, and in the midst of it and through it all, he's done a work in my life that has given me the fulfillment and the joy that can only come from Sometimes our plans change, ultimately for the good of others. Whenever we look in Scripture, and whenever we understand that God allows this world to run its course, sometimes it causes us to begin to ask questions that we've never asked before. However, thankfully, what we see is that for those who trust God, and for those that know Him through Jesus, God is able to provide in a way that no one else in this world itself can't provide. You know, the Apostle Paul would be in a circumstance similar. You don't have to turn there, but if you look on the overhead, you'll see a passage from the book of Philippians chapter 1. Paul would write the book of Philippians from prison, not because of something he had done, but because he had been wrongly arrested and imprisoned for simply sharing the message of the gospel. Notice what his perspective is. He says, I want you to know, brethren, as he writes to the Philippian believers, he says that my circumstances, my circumstances means prison, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. In other words, it were those in, uh, under Roman rule who were responsible for guarding him. That my imprisonment and the cause of Christ has become well known throughout all of these who are guarding me who don't know God. 
and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, in other words, the other believers as well, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul could say, from an, as a New Testament example, that I have been wrongly imprisoned. I have been put in prison for nothing more than the proclaiming the message of the gospel of my Savior. And yet, when I have been in prison, though it was not my plan, Paul had a plan to get to Rome. Paul had a plan even to go further than Rome, uh, uh, ultimately to Spain, the Bible shows us. And yet, those plans would change. Paul would die in prison, ultimately. And so his plans would change, but he could still look back and say, yet even my own imprisonment has served, one, to create the message of the gospel being proclaimed amongst those who have never heard, and then two, it's even strengthened those who already know Jesus. And I believe Paul understood as Joseph understood, that there are times where God allows or orchestrates our plans to change so that he can accomplish good in the lives of other people around us. And we have to do battle with that. We have to wrestle with that. And we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to love others that way? Am I willing to love others even when it costs me? Am I willing to allow my plans and my hopes and my dreams to be changed simply for the good of another person? And still trust that God is good and still trust that God is enough for me and still trust that God has an overarching purpose for my life that even if my plans change, it doesn't mean that I will never have fulfillment. It doesn't mean that I'll never have hope. It doesn't mean I'll never have joy because He is all those things. And so I understand. No, I won't say that. I'll take that back. I know that there are some that have been through territory that I hope to never go through. Territory where your plans changed and you have been distant from God or angry from God or bitter at God ever since. You're not alone. There are many in Scripture that have been right there where you are. And the secret that they found was that even though our plans change, God never does. And that as an act of His own will, He chose to come into this fallen world, as I said before, to lead us to a life of fulfillment, to salvation, and to life in Him. So what change of plans have you experienced lately? Guaranteed, God wants to use that change to mold you and to shape you. God just may want to use those changes of plans to direct you to where He wants you to be. It's worth praying about. God may want to use that change of plans as, as kind of a tool to accommodate His timing because He's got something coming later for you that you can't, you're not ready for yet. And so He's, he's prepping you. He's positioning you. And this change is a part of all those dynamics. Or maybe... He's allowed the changes to come for the good of somebody else. And whenever we begin to see Him for who He is and trust Him for who He is, and whenever we begin to apply not just trust but hope and even gratitude that, you know, God, only you could take the worst of experiences and work good out of them. It begins to change our whole attitude and our whole life. Maybe for you, God has allowed your change to bring you to a relationship with Himself. Or maybe He's doing something different. But are you willing to trust Him? Are you willing to hope in Him? Are you willing to follow Him wherever He leads through your own relationship with Jesus? Let's pray.